1: in Reston, Virginia. He's licensed in 3 states: Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia. He works the tri-states area including Baltimore, DC, and Hamden Roads. Last year, he closed 603 transactions with a total sales volume of 118 million. His average sales price was 195,000. 20% were buyers and eighty percent were sellers. He operates a team with 17 members one pre-marketing, one valuation and repair, one contracts, two closers, one utility HOA, one accounting reimbursement, two runners, three field agents, four buyer agents, and one team leader. Leo Perea is the team leader of the Leo Perea team. He specializes in selling REO and multi-transactional sales. Last year, Leo was ranked the number one agent worldwide for Keller Williams Realty by number of transactions, an amazing feat for someone who has yet to see his 30th birthday. Leo attributes his success to his mindset and determination. He's been able to regroup, refocus, and persevere even after humbling defeats. Leo states that he's not special and that systems mindset and repetition will set you where you want to go. Leo is an expert in REO sales. The majority of his closings last year were REO. This interview will focus on answering three major questions. How do you develop a relationship with banks and asset managers? What exactly happens during an REO transaction from start to finish? And what do you have to know to become an REO agent? First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show welcome to the call Leo thank you Mike how are you doing fantastic Leo before we go into what you're doing now can we go back a little ways and talk about your life before real estate what were you doing before you got into real estate Uh that's a great question I actually was a freshman in college Wow so you started as a freshman or as a sophomore as a freshman going into my sophomore year and how did you get into the real estate business how, how'd that come about I read Robert, uh, Robert
2: Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad while I was in college, and that was the first time I understood leverage, uh, or, the, the, or the basic concept of, of leverage. And as I say, it kind of ruined my, uh, my uh, college career in the sense of going and getting a job, and I started reading every book I could get my hands on about real estate. So did you complete your college degree? I did, not both my parents have a PhD, so that was not optional in my family.
1: So you got into the business. Did you start selling right away? What capacity did you get in at? I started
2: trying to shadow anybody who would show me anything about real estate. Actually, my father ran into a gentleman at a personal development seminar who asked him if he was interested in investing in real estate passively, which is a very common technique for investors to raise capital. And my father said no, but that he had a son who was obsessively reading everything he get to get his hands on. And, um, I called the gentleman. He was not interested in working with me because as he said, it, I was a snot nosed teenager, but he referred me to a gentleman out in Colorado named Claude Diamond, who till this day, I think is probably one of the best salesmen I've ever met. And, uh, he told me that he would, he would coach me and he would teach me everything I wanted to learn. Cause at first I just wanted to be an investor and, um, he had, he said that if I paid him $10,000, he would coach me. And at 19, that might as well have been a million dollars because I didn't have any of it. Uh, so unbeknownst to my friends and family and my parents, I actually um, took my car and sold it and uh, gave him part of uh, what I netted out of there and bought a uh, POS car to get me back to school and uh, home. And signed a contract with him that said he had a wax on wax off clause that I had to do what he said, no questions asked. And we went through a one year um, coaching program where I didn't realize it, but he was teaching me sales techniques. We were um, role playing, placing ads in the paper, controlling conversations, you know, all all some of that hardcore sales techniques that you need in order to um, get really good in person.
1: So you started out as an investor?
2: Well, I started out as a wannabe investor. And part of his training program was teaching me techniques, negotiation, all that fun stuff, building a database. And part of his coaching said, um, required me to get a real estate license. Because um, he believed and as I now believe, that realtors probably have the best understanding of true value in the marketplace. Not You know, the appraisal approach isn't as accurate because they're not looking into present conditions as much as, um, you know, past conditions, which I think is the biggest variation between an appraisal and a a realtor's opinion. And I didn't want to get my real estate license because I didn't want to be a realtor. I wanted to be an investor, but it was part of the contract that I had to wax on wax off. And I think that decision changed the course of my life.
1: What happened at the end of that year?
2: At the end of that year, well, when I got my license, um, I had to find somewhere to hang it. So I went back to the original uh, gentleman who uh, had referred me over to him and he was launching a Keller Williams franchise and he did investing in real estate. And that's when I decided to um, hang my license with Keller Williams. And for me, what my then coach said was important was to find a, a broker who was okay with creative real estate. Of course, as long as you were complying with all state regulations, but that wasn't so, you know, cookie cutter traditional. That would be okay with creative real estate. And um, I went and hung my license at Keller Williams right when that one franchise was being launched.
1: When you got started, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? It's funny, from hanging my lot since that was October of 2002,
2: um, I didn't do my first transaction probably till almost May of 2003. So I would say it was a slow start because I was doing mostly administrative stuff. Um, helping run renovations, estimate properties, doing tasks for the office and it wasn't until I got into an argument with my back then landlord um, because I was a college student with my roommates that I even considered buying real estate and um, I was advised to talk to a loan officer back then because I was um, in Virginia we don't have a protected class for college students In the District of Columbia, we do, but in Virginia, someone can say, I don't want to rent to you because you're four unrelated 18-year-olds. So we were actually having quite a difficulty finding a rental, and this was when the market was starting to boom. I went and talked to a loan officer, and they said, well, you could buy with an FHA loan. You have stellar credit because I had bought that car in high school, the one I ended up selling. And we had my dad qualify as a non-occupant co-borrower. The 3% down came from my commission because I earned that in the sale. And I got the seller to pay all my closing costs. So I bought my first no money down property pretty much the sophomore year of college. And um, I rented out all the rooms to buddies of mine and it pretty much covered the entire mortgage. So you were living rent free. Just about. And that's when I realized that there was uh, something to this realtor thing. And that summer I called every fraternity brother who was in the same situation that couldn't find a rental because of their age. And I said, let me talk to your dad. And when I got their parents on the phone, I said, "Um, how would you like me to show you how to pay for your son's college and then some. And I think in a three-month period, I sold seven houses and made over $40,000 and stopped waiting tables.
1: So that was your first niche?
2: Yep, that was my first niche.
1: Well, let's move forward. Let's come into the present. Where do you sell real estate now? Could you please describe your current market? Sure. I'm licensed in three states. I'm licensed in uh, Virginia, the District
2: of Columbia, and the state of Maryland. And um, in my market, I reside in Arlington, Virginia, which is kind of in the center of the tri-states. You know, I'm two miles over the bridge into D.C. and three miles or four miles into Maryland. But unlike most agents that have all three licenses that kind of just cover the D.C. metro, I actually have a southern Virginia office in the uh, Tidewater area. Hampton Roads, where all the military bases are. And then I have another office in Baltimore. So I cover the, med, the all major metro markets that we have in the three states. Yeah, so we, I cover a very large territory.
1: What are the market conditions there? Is the, is the market up? Is it down? Is it flat? Well, the interesting thing is for me, it always varies because each one of my markets is kind of doing something different.
2: As of right now, as a whole, I would say that we're, we're very strong. There's been a lack of inventory placed on the market since the robo-signing debacle we had back in October with all the banks, and everyone kind of put the brakes on the foreclosure process and how they um, take them through the foreclosure process. So uh, technically, DC is appreciated right now, and it's pretty competitive, but uh, my humble opinion is based on lack of inventory, and I think it's artificial. What is your niche? My current niche is primarily... um, Bank-owned homes. So, well, and I would add to that, multi-transactional sellers. Meaning, um, I have very few clients that give me lots of listings. So, REO would be the the, the largest Toronto business, followed by investors, and then followed by uh, builders and inve- Yeah, investors slash builders. They kind of overlap there as to what they do.
1: Let's go into that REO market. I'm sure there's a lot of curiosity out there about it. How many REOs did you list last year? You say you have a couple of sellers. They gave you a bunch of listings. How how many listings are we talking about? Out of the 603 transactions last
2: year, uh, I think right around 350 of those were REO. So just over half. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned that you're working with some banks. How many banks gave you these 350 listings? At one point, I was representing as
2: many as 25 different uh, banks, ranging from your very small community bank all the way to some of the largest uh, financial institutions that hold uh, mortgages in the United States. Um, But with that being said, you know, over the years, one of the things I encourage agents to do, I I teach a best practices class uh, on how to do foreclosures. And I, I tell everyone, you know, banks are no different than humans in the sense where you need to hold them accountable and choose the ones you're in business with just because you were able to get one bank to give you properties doesn't mean that was a good business decision. If it's not a good personality mix, responsibility mix, you don't feel that they have the same um, ethics as you do. And, and, you know, I'm sure we'll go into the process a little bit more, but part of the crux of doing REO is that um, we have to carry receivables and some aren't very good at paying people back. So um, I think you have to be very selective. So to answer your question. Currently, I probably have active properties with, I don't know, a dozen banks, but the majority of that is coming from two or three relationships.
1: How many current listings do you have on that REO side? Right now, we're probably right around 150. Uh,
2: last year, before the robo-signing scandal kind of put the freeze nationwide, we I think we had topped out at carrying about 250.
1: Let's talk about how you opened the door into the REO market. How did you go from selling homes to your college buddies to getting into the REO market? What opened your eyes to the REO market? And then how did you open that door?
2: Okay, so that, that was uh,
1: quite a few years elapsed there. So you want the whole story or you want a portion of it? Give us the, the highlights. How did you get, find out about REOs? And how did you move into that business? How, how did you get your first REO transaction? How, how did you open that door?
2: Okay, so from when I was in college um, selling, you know, if you you, 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 you asked a very specific question of niche, I went from the selling to my immediate sphere of influence niche. And then my next niche was, um, I, I'm of Hispanic descent. I speak fluent Spanish and I got very involved with the nonprofit and I taught a lot of their first time home buyer seminars um, and got very involved in the community that way. So my second niche uh, was first time home buyers. And then from there I started working more with investors. Uh, But at that point I was graduating college. I'd gotten a broker's license. I went more into management and helped run the brokerage. I went to um, an independent and opened offices and recruited and we put quite a bit of cash into getting that up and running around 05, 06. And if you remember what happened to the market, it kind of imploded on its head. So that was a very uh, difficult time. A lot of cash had been invested in, in launching that on, on, on the same time as the uh, market turning on its head. So it was a um, very humbling experience to have to, you know, going from the highs of 05, 06, to having invested cash, not expecting the party to end, and then pretty much almost you know hitting rock bottom and saying, do, do I get out of the industry or do I reinvent myself? And um, I decided to hit it full force, and I started uh, dialing for dollars, as I like to call it, and calling everybody I knew when I was trying to reinvent myself. And actually, it was one of my relationships with uh, uh, Wells Fargo that I had sent a ton of retail business to during the boom. Uh, who said, you know, sign up on this website, and we're, I want you to do a BPO, and we're going to pay you $50 for it. And I didn't know what a BPO was, but I needed the $50. So I kept asking for more and more, and I think in a 30-day period, I did over 100 of them. And the following month, they gave me eight listings. And I said, I like BPOs. So then I called Bank of America, and I called IndyMac, and I just kept going down the phone list. And I think I, I shifted fast enough that it, I, I did it before it was cool. So I was able to um, pick up steam very quickly.
1: You kind of fell into it, but then once you figured it out, you went at it from the BPO side. If you did enough BPOs and did a good enough job, that would translate into REO listings.
2: And I want to only emphasize that that approach was kind of the, the door that was open at that time. I really would advise that now because um, there's a lot of BPO companies that have nothing to do with REO listings at this point. And I I do constantly see agents um, tell me that they've been doing BPOs for years and haven't gotten a listing. And there's just the distinction because several years back, companies kind of did both. And now they've kind of isolated that into separate lines of business.
1: How would you recommend that a new agent or even an experienced agent who hasn't done REOs, if they want to move into the REO business, how should they do that today? How would they open the door today?
2: I think... what What's key is education and kind of learning as much as you can about the industry. So attending all the national conferences. Um, but networking, well, th- there's uh, I meet agents all the time who still say they just go on websites and sign up. So, I mean, there is an explosion in the amount of asset management companies as well. So uh, the key is to first get some experience, so whether you get it from a smaller local bank or you get it from a smaller asset management company it's very important to get a couple transactions under the belt because a lot of the bigger companies require experience and a resume. But I do encourage people to get out to the conferences, take um, classes, get educated. Um, Because honestly, I think people really need to sit down and give it a hard look to see if REO is a business they want to be in. I mean, it's not for everybody. When When I teach my class, that's the first thing we go over and talk about the realities of the good and the bad and the ugly that come with REO.
1: What are some of the advantages of the REO market? So REO is extremely wonderful in the
2: sense where you don't have to, you know, lead generate on a, you know, per cost basis, whether it's TV, radio, direct mail, you know, the traditional forms of, a, of lead generating, which can be very costly. So, you know, once you have an account, you just get an email saying you have an assignment and you have to service it. So that, that is the wonderful part about REO. With that come all the responsibilities of it, the expenses, the reporting, the accounting, the accountability. Um, It's very different than traditional real estate.
1: You mentioned these conferences. What type of conferences should our listeners be looking for? Do they just go on the internet and type in REO conference? I'll give you some of the larger ones. Um, The Five Star
2: Institute uh, puts on, I think, two conferences a year. Uh, But their big one, I think, is in September. Then... um, REO Mac has um, a couple big ones a year. REO Expo is another very large one. What I encourage people to do is, is go there, um, you know, with your most extroverted uh, foot forward, because where I've seen most agents grow their business, including myself, is not actually chasing the asset managers who might offhandedly give you, know, give you a way in which happens. It's actually networking with agents in different marketplaces who have a strong relationship cuz that business is no different than any other where people want to refer. I'll get calls from asset managers saying, "Hey, who do you know in Southern California or I just got Arizona. I need a good agent in Tucson who understands the guidelines of this specific bank. I know you you do a lot of business with that bank. Send me someone who's in that network who's a, you know, who knows what they're
1: doing." And you've met these people through these conferences, you're the people that you're going to refer. Absolutely, yes. And that's actually part of one of the things I,
2: I do. I network with top agents around the country for best practices. And one of the things when you get to a very high producing level in your marketplace, one of the things you'll realize is there's no one in your marketplace that you can network with because you're at the top of the food chain. So there's not too many people doing the, the volume that you're doing. So I've had to reach out into different marketplaces to, you know, bounce ideas, best practices um, with other
1: folks doing that kind of volume. It sounds like the best way to break into this business is to meet someone in person at a conference, and as opposed to going directly to the bank, it would be to uh, meet other top agents that are already working in the market.
2: I wouldn't say it's the best. I I, I would say if you want to do REO, you need to be relentless in in your desire to get into it, and you
1: kind of have to do all of it. Should agents go directly to asset managers? Is that, you, you kind of made it sound like that might be a mistake. Only because I
2: see how many how the typical agent does the approach, and it's it's I I think it's almost downright rude, and they just kind of attack them at the uh, conferences and shove a business card in their face. So if you can find a softer approach, you know that would probably be. But 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 you got to think, you know, just like any other form of marketing, these folks get emailed and called and co-called constantly, and just like in your retail practice. A warm referral is way more effective than a cold call.
1: So try to figure out a way to get referred in to that asset manager as opposed to just knocking on the door.
2: Absolutely. One of the things I tell agents who say they want to get into REO, and I said before you go looking up strangers, call everybody you know and say, who do you know or are you related to that works in banking and foreclosures? And I've heard stories time and time again across the country from someone who said, That's exactly how I got in. I was just asking, and it turned out my sister's college roommate now runs so-and-so bank. And that's how they got in. So you don't even know who you know in your own
1: network. And that's how you started, isn't it? You were making phone calls trying to drum up business, and you kind of bumped into it. Exactly. How many listing assignments, REO assignments, do you typically get in a a week or a month? Um, It varies.
2: Last year, we were right around... 30 to 35 assignments average. So some months we did 15 and one month we had as high as 50. Um, this year has been a little bit above 20, uh, but that's expected with all the um, regulations that went into place and the slowdown. And that's actually one of the reasons why I tell everybody, I don't care if you're one of the best REO agents in the country, you need to maintain a retail base because moratoriums happen, you know, legal stuff happens. You know, how, how many times do we keep hearing of, um, Congress introducing bills into Congress to take Fannie and Freddie apart or to merge them. That's the newest bill that went into, uh, presented into the Congress this week. So there's constant change going on in that market. Absolutely. One of the things I I tell people when I try to remember constantly is no one's entitled to this business. You know, it showed up. I'm grateful for it. But there's nothing that says that I deserve my unfair share of it. So I'm grateful for it. And if it leaves tomorrow, you, you need to be able to ramp your business up and down just as quickly. And, and and be transparent with the folks that you bring on to this. If you're bringing people on to an REO business unit, you know, say, hey, I, I tell my folks, I, I will be as open book as possible. I'll teach you anything you want to learn about the business. But just understand that when this is over, if you don't have any other skill sets, you know, you're, you're going to have to find something else to do, but you know, while you're with me, I encourage you to get licensed, go on listing appointments with me, go on buyer appointments because those skill sets are invaluable and can be used in in any market.
1: And you've been flexible through your career with your career background. You've had to do that. You've had to shift markets as things changed. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean,
2: you know, Gary Keller wrote the book shift and it's, it's very basic concepts. And I think that's the key to, to real estate is is somewhat um, forecasting what the next shift is going to be, which is difficult. But in order to do it, even if you don't catch it when it starts shifting, just have a business model that, that can shift accordingly, very quickly, no matter which way it goes. So scalability is probably the word I'm looking
1: for. I've heard a, a rumor that banks limit the number of Ario listings that any one agent can have at at any given time is is that true? Have you run into that?
2: That's absolutely true. And each and part of the issue with that is that banks change their policies constantly. So it is is just it, if you get into Ario, you need to be okay with that because it can be very frustrating. But they, I mean, they they change their criteria, their evaluation methods, their scoring. You know, they can come out with a national scorecard that pulls nationally. And, you know, you could get hurt because you're selling too fast, too slow. It depends on what market you're in. And yes, and they limit the number of properties, the proximity to your office. Sometimes it's 15 miles, sometimes it's five miles. You know, and the, the empathy that needs to be had with these organizations, they just have an abundance of properties they need to deal with with a staff that's not prepared for it. And they're trying to not only you know satisfy the investors that own these 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 institutions but as well as the uh, government entities who are now involved because of the money that's had to be pumped into this organization so there's just so many different boxes that need to be checked and people to satisfy that it's just a constant change and and what you've heard is true And not all of them do it. Some do it differently. Some base it on performance. But for the most part, that's where I'm seeing a lot of the industry shift towards.
1: What are some common caps that you're seeing? Is it three listings per agent or five or ten? Is there a common number that's popping out?
2: It really depends. um, The outsourced. Um, So just to just explain how how it works, there's there's direct relationships where you're working directly with the financial institution. Then there are relationships where the institution outsources and that we call those outsourcers and or asset management companies to to a third party vendor who deals with, you know, if an institution isn't set up to have internal folks in that department, they outsource it. And the outsourcers, um, I've seen them have caps as low as 10 and as high as 30. Um, but the directs for the most part, the, the direct institutions that handle it internally, most of the time have been established and have been there for a while. And a lot of them just kind of keep increasing your your uh, limit uh, based on performance and experience. I mean, there's institutions that will give you 200, 300 at a time. But obviously, you, you, that's not going to be your first week. You know, you have to prove it and you have to. There is, I mean, and, you know, going into the responsibilities for a lot of these, we're now repairing them we're managing the repairs. We're advising as to what to do to them. And there's one we're finishing a $70,000 renovation on, on behalf of a bank. And they wouldn't do that with, you know, a first timer, but they're no, they, you know, based on track record, they're comfortable with us doing that for them.
1: So sometimes these banks will invest money in these properties. They're not always sold as you receive them. Absolutely. I think that's
2: probably the biggest shift that we've seen in the industry in the last 24 months. And I talk about this when I teach because, you know, if you had to define the goal of REO is to sell the property in the shortest amount of time with the least loss severity for the most amount of money. That's pretty much been the theory with REO. But I would add to that statement because of the shift in the industry in the last 24 months by adhering to the seller's philosophy. So if it's one of the GSEs, they want to stabilize communities, and I, I, I want to thank them for it because if everyone was slashing prices and dumping everything on the market as is, we'd we'd be in in a much worse double dip recession. So a lot of these larger ones who hold a lot of paper have an obligation to 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 the government and to the people. To, to make sure they don't topple our economy by just dumping everything on the market. And a lot of them are really pushing to get these properties financeable to an owner-occupant standard. And I, I really applaud them for it.
1: Walk through a typical transaction from start to finish. Let's say that you you have uh, made a relationship. You've become successful and received an assignment what happens from there? You get this assignment. What does it look like? And, and kind of the process from there all the way through the closing, what happens? Could you walk us through that?
2: I could. I, I just laugh because um, I, I teach an eight-hour class on that question. Again, not all banks behave the same way. So I'll just preface the explanation there because some banks literally will do everything for you. And I'll go into the steps of what can vary. And some really delegate pretty much the entire Autonomy to you so I can I can break it down into pretty much five steps there's the, the, the referral of the property there's the uh, then, then there's the pre marketing phase of the property there's the listing of the property the under uh, listing/ marketing of the property and then the contract phase of the property and then getting it to closing so um, you know comparing it to retail it's slightly different because we don't have the the additional uh, categories in retail. Um, in retail, meaning working with traditional homeowners. So, your, your first um, your first step is, you know, assuming you you've already signed up, are working with the client. Um, you know, well, if you, if you have first time home uh, first time listeners, the to REO, I, I'll step back. So, when when you do get a, an email from a company saying they're they're looking to bring you on, be prepared to provide your copy of your license a lot of them want to see your broker's license, E&O, general liability, uh, resume, um, you know variations of, of that some might ask for less some might ask for more um, but once once you're in the system you get um, an email stating that there's an assignment available in your area some companies require you to log in and accept the assignment and they might give you you know uh, a window of time there to to accept the assignment. Some just put it in your queue and you have to start all your responsibilities but the first task that you're going to be asked is to um, determine occupancy and that's typically a 24-hour window that you have to determine whether the property is occupied or vacant and it's up to you to then go out again following each client specific guidelines and if you find it to be vacant it, you, know, you can move the property into that uh, pre-marketing phase which we'll get into next but it gets a little tricky when you can't determine what it is. So, you know, I encourage people to start from the second they get it. um, It starts in the office, you know, as soon as you get the property, log into the MLS, see if it's previously listed. Because unfortunately half these listings we're getting are currently on the MLS as a short sale. You know, you call the agent, they're telling you it's fully approved to bring them an offer, right? They're, you know, I I, I tell everyone the most important word that you kind of need to have in the back of your mind is empathy throughout the entire transaction empathy with the short sale agent who has worked, put his time, money and effort in for the last six months to, you know, cause you're letting them know that he's not getting, he or she is not getting paid and they need to take the listing out of the MLS. I mean, it, it starts at the very beginning where, where you're almost in an uphill battle with confrontation to It not being in the MLS and you getting to the house and there's an occupant in the house and you're, you're delivering the news that, um, the property has been taken back through foreclosure auction and you're trying to identify who's in the property. And those conversations vary from the, the homeowner or the previous borrower, who's well aware of the situation to a tenant who's got no idea, you know, if you're knocking on the door of the fifth of the month, it's not uncommon that they paid rent on the third and the property has been foreclosed on now.
1: What do you do in those situations? What do you do with those tenants?
2: Again, each client has a different guideline. The larger um, government intervene institutions actually are incredibly um, accommodating. If it's a tenant, they refer to a different department that validates the lease to make sure it's fair market rent and will we'll honor the lease and actually rent to them. Um, versus a smaller bank who, you know, depending on each state, uh, each state has different laws. For example, Virginia pretty much states that the uh, the lease gets – uh, wiped out it's through the foreclosure action. And, you know, it, it, it really depends. Some states are, are more pro-consumer and, and have different uh, rules in place. But but you're there to listen with empathy. And obviously, you're representing your client. But you in, – in, in REO, what's different um, is representing your client means, you know, keeping them out of trouble and keeping them from – you know, any your actions need to protect them from from having the, the consumer go out and uh, – seek legal um, advice against, against the client. So you're really there to, to help the transaction uh, not go astray, if you will.
1: And then you also find owner-occupants on the property?
2: Absolutely. And of course, the owner-occupants aren't eligible to rent the property. So um, if, if you find an owner-occupant, pretty much there's only, uh, it, it, it's to get them out of the property through a relocation assistance or cash for keys. How each bank calls them is slightly different. Do most of these people accept the cash, or do you ever have to evict? I would say the majority of the people are willing to 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 take the cash because eviction is not pleasant for anybody. I tell people banks don't want to do it; it's costly, it's it's confrontational, and the easiest thing is to take um take the relocation assistance that the that the institution may be offering. Uh, but Unfortunately, and well, this is one of the things that I, I spend quite a bit of time when I'm teaching is saying, you know, you, you really need to be okay with the, the outcomes, no matter what they are, because in, in real estate, we can only really control activity. I, I see agents I get frustrated or angry with someone in the house, and there's absolutely no need to. It's it's, it's their situation, and you don't know what they're going through, and a lot of the times, some of these larger homes, you know, the $500,000 home, the cash for key offer may only be 2500 and they, you know, A, that doesn't give them enough money to cover their their moving expense or, you know, just waiting it out for the 90 day to six months for the eviction to take place um, might be a better financial situation for them because relocating to somewhere comparable costs more than that in rent. And each person is different. And sometimes they don't have anywhere to go and just waiting it out till they can try to find a better opportunity is, is the only choice they have. And it's really not up to you to, to, to judge at all. You're just there to facilitate both sides of it.
1: So do you typically wait it out?
2: No, I would say most people, um, you
1: know, I,
2: I I truly think most people are good. And a lot of this stuff was, uh, had to happen outside of people's control. You know, the, the the economy shrunk and people lost jobs. And I mean, people are, are, are not proud of this. This is an you know, an embarrassing moment, and, and they, don't, they don't want to put their family through an eviction, I would say most people are, are willing to, to, to work with you.
1: You mentioned that some of these properties, they were trying to sell them short-sell. You call the agent from the MLS, and they have a contract already, uh, an offer that they're trying to present to the bank. What do you do in those situations? Those, those
2: are, are, are unique in the sense where, um, I mean, the, the gamut of things that can happen happens. I've, I've seen the actual, because remember, there's a lot of moving parts. The the, the the listing agent could have been working through a servicer, right? And I'm getting the foreclosure through the investor the GSE who, who actually owned the interest to the note. And I've had times where they were correct and they actually had a valid contract that was getting approved and the foreclosure sale was rescinded and it goes back to the servicer and we don't do anything with it. We've had them happen where they just ran out of time because as, as, as you as a realtor and anybody else in the uh, current industry knows, sometimes, you know, they just didn't get approval in time and the foreclosure sale happened and there's nothing to do to reverse it. And we, we've we had it where uh, that short sale selling agent, you know, the buyers on the buyer agent side contacted us and we were able to present that offer and get the sale done without even going to market. But that's typ- excuse me, that's only typically when the the buyer might be the tenant because that's actually a very common situation, right, where the tenant's attempting to buy the house as a short sale. But typically, if it's an outside buyer and the property is vacant, the bank's just going to uh, take it through its, 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 its entire funnel, if you will, and um, advise the, the, the buyer who had the short sale offer and to wait till when they bring it to market again
1: whose job is it to secure the possession of the property? Is that something that uh, the bank is doing, or is that something that that you're required to do?
2: And that depends on the relationship. Some banks literally do all of it for you and send out a a property preservation company to secure the property. And others... um, have you do it? I would say the the it's, it's almost split nowadays, but a good half of them make you do it yourself, and that's that's step one of where you need to protect yourself. You know, when when you're securing property and doing stuff on behalf of the seller, you need to have all kinds of documentation that a you have the right to be there, but b that you're following all the state laws. So most state laws, when it comes to um, you know trashing out um, leftover property and securing stuff, you know they they have a rule of thumb that says Anything over a $500 worth of uh, garage sale value is considered personal property. And a personal property eviction has to be done on the property. You can verify from the neighbors or from the homeowner that they moved out. But if there's personal property, uh, an eviction has to still take place.
1: We got the referral. You verify occupancy. So
2: so from verifying occupancy... um, one of two things happen, it's immediately vacant and then we move to the next step which is the pre-marketing phase or it's occupied. And then um, your goal is to get it to the next phase of pre-marketing getting it vacated. So A, you can either do a cash for key situation um, if it's occupied or B, the, the not so pleasant eviction takes place. And then once, once either one of those routes take place, um, you're at step two which is the pre-marketing phase. Once the property is vacant, you, you notify the client, and then the, the following instruction will be to secure the property. Whether that's you doing it um, by hiring a contractor directly, or uh, the bank sending out their property preservation company. And then the next step that t- um the property, the initial services that take place with the um, property preservation. So you know if there's leftover stuff, trashing it out, cleaning it up, um, maintaining the lawn, turning on the utilities. All that stuff takes place and depending on the client you do it or they do it for you Um, so you you set up all the reoccurring services that are going to take place utilities maintenance in the winter we winterize Um, in the summer you clean out the pool depending on the value of the house and the type of pool some clients may want you to have the pool operational you know if it's a selling point they they want you to have it operational if it's an above-ground pool that isn't of the best quality, they'll just have you tear it out. So you really need to understand what the client's guidelines are. And one of the overarching themes at all times is protecting the asset. And that doesn't just mean the, you know, the actual physical property, but, you know, limiting liability for your seller. And, you know, that might mean tearing out a pool, filling it in, building a six-foot fence, and putting a padlock on it to be HUD compliant. So it it really depends as to what the client's uh, wanting to do.
1: So you would have to get bids for all that work and present that to the the client, and then the client decides, yay or nay.
2: Absolutely, each client slightly different. Some, you know, require one bid up to X amount, two bids up to Y amount, three bids up to Z amount. Some have their own prescribed vendors that if you use their vendor, you don't need a bid. You just turn in their their uh, client, and they deal directly with the with the vendor themselves. Absolutely, and then part of the pre-marketing phase is determining the marketing strategy. So you're going to uh, complete a BPO, which I didn't define earlier as broker price opinion. Um, And these are not fee. This is a listing BPO. So you're, you're saying, Hey, this house, the best way to dispose of it is to get it to an as repaired condition because 80% of the sales in the last six months have been owner occupied. We're in a, um, you know, highly um, transient part of the country based on the military base, 60% of the buyers are, uh, military VA loan, we're most likely going to have a VA buyer. This house needs to be repaired to a VA appraisal condition. You know, Because if we go as is, we're going to have to heavily discount it for an investor in order for the investor to come in and buy it and, and do the same thing. So it's really your job to determine that. And a lot of times we then need to come up with a scope of repair to to argue our point. And that uh, that either helps the bank make the decision to repair or to then to discount accordingly for the as-is sale.
1: So you have to have a firm handle on how much it costs to repair items. Absolutely. That's
2: that's probably the biggest differentiation between traditional vanilla real estate um, and REO. I, not only do you have to have the stomach for it, the financial wherewithal, but really have a clear understanding of repair costs and and. and the discount you give for the lack thereof,:
1: how did you develop that? Did you do that by putting out just x number of bids and you learned over time? Did you go to a class? Did you read a book? Well,
2: remember my my background was almost designed for this. I, I represented investors and ran renovation crews for years. so my personal experience was almost perfect for this. One of my top agents that works on my team? Uh, was an insurance adjuster for 10 years and and actually went and assessed burn damage and stuff like that. So I really have a unique team. But one of the things I encourage agents to do is um, spend a little money in your own education. And uh, I'll tell them, call, call a local lender and tell you to give you a couple names of appraisers and just call an appraiser and say, hey, what day are you free in an afternoon? Would you like to make a couple hundred bucks? Stick an appraiser in your car and pull four or five REO listings that are being sold as is. And um, tell them to walk through with a pad of paper and tell you what would you fail this house on an FHA inspection? And that's really because one of the biggest fallacies that I don't think people understand in the BPO is when you're checking as repaired, you were saying this house is FHA slash VA financeable. It's not paint and carpet. You know, and that's probably the biggest mistake when you choose to repair an REO. If you're not going to, you know, paint and carpet but also fix, the bath, the kitchen, the peeling paint, you know, all the issues that come with a FHR loan. you might as well not do it because you're just throwing away money because it still has to be an as is sale or a conventional sale. And in a lot of markets where, you know, these are first time home buyer properties, you're not going to get the conventional buyer. So you really need to that that's why the bank is hiring you. Because you're the local market expert with local knowledge and you really understand who the buyer pool is. A lot of the neighborhoods we sell in, we're selling in the low one hundreds. And the percentage of loans that are actually conventional versus a FHA or VA are minimal. So if I do minimal conventional repairs, I'm setting up my seller to fail.
1: Because they won't be able to sell into that market with a first-time homebuyer. Absolutely. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Who is typically buying these REOs? Is it typically an investor or is it typically an owner-occupied? No, and
2: again, each, each agent will tell you something different based on their client mix. So I work with the larger institutions who, I, I, and again, I'm in a very um, healthy, active market. And I tell you, I, I repair 80 to 90% of my inventory to an owner-occupied standard. So 8 out of 10 houses I sell go to an owner-occupant. But for example, if a, if a person worked with, let's say, HUD that doesn't repair anything and I don't work with them, and again, it's not a good or a bad thing, it's their disposition strategy, uh, I would assume that most of those would probably go to an investor. So there, there's clients whose selling philosophy is minimize loss, minimize time on market. We don't have any more cash to put in these, sell them as is. And if that's all that agent sold, his answer would be they go to investors. But as as an overall industry, I think there's a shift. And, it, and, and most of this is because Fannie and Freddie control the majority of the paper in the country, and they're the ones pushing this to an owner-occupied, uh, stabilizing the market. And I personally – I uh, think that that's the right thing to do to get us back to a healthy market.
1: Do you as the agent, do you earn a different fee based on whether you're having to do all this fix-up, repair, renovation, management, or whether you're selling it just as you received it? Uh, it? It's funny. The people who ask me that question most frequently are business owners who I explain my business model to,
2: and they're floored when I tell them no. Uh, your commission is is all you earn. Um, So part of it is, A, it's a competitive advantage because I'm willing to do it and other folks aren't. B, I guess my my reward is the fact I sell it for a higher price. Uh, Two, I sell it much faster. And three, I actually get to sell it because one of the things with REO is very timeline-driven. You only have a set amount of time before the property gets sent to auction or gets reassigned. So if I don't sell it all the time, money, and effort I spent is not, um, I mean, it's the the, the dollars spent are reimbursed, but I don't get compensated for the time, money, and effort, gas, everything that went into marketing that property.
1: We're in pre-marketing. What else do we need to know? You've got to do a BPO. You have to come up with a marketing strategy
2: the the repair scope the scope of repairs is very important determining what needs to be done to the property and again some of the for clients that don't repair it it's an exercise in evaluating what needs to be done but I tell people it's it's extremely important that that is done as detailed even on the low dollar properties you know they're not going to repair because that's the biggest adjustment in values condition so if you don't have a firm handle you know to, for example if 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 there's a property that as repaired would sell for 120, and as is the the broker saying it needs 8K and would sell as is at 100, and the client decides to list at 100, but really you know 8K might only be painting carpet and some new appliances, but they didn't take into effect that the roof is shot, that the windows are, are have broken seals on them, and that the hot water heater needs to go, you know an investor may only offer 70 grand because they need to have enough spread to be motivated enough or even hairy homeowner who's going to um, you know put sweat equity and do the work themselves you know you you kind of make sure that you're valuing correctly that you know if your your as is value has enough of a spread in there where whoever buys the house whether it's for profit or for homeownership has enough incentive to do it
1: you've mentioned this term multiple times i think we should define it as is what does that mean to you
2: so there's two two boxes on the BPO on, on strategy. As repaired, I defined as financeable according to FHA and VA standard. As is, meaning it's sold as is. And and typically, as is uh, uh, obviously is defined that the seller is not going to do anything to that subject property. So as is could be financeable still. You know, if it's new construction, it was just uh, lived in very gently and nothing uh, was done to it it's newer construction but i'm assuming most properties built in the 40s 50s 60s 70s which is what the housing stock is in my market if we are doing nothing to it it's going to have some deferred maintenance that's gonna be an issue with financeability you know uh, in my opinion fhnv are getting even more stringent every day on the inspections and they they're almost full-blown home inspections now where i have the inspectors crawling through the crawl spaces and double checking everything, which, again, I'm not complaining. I think it's a very good thing. If we had those st- stringent standards, uh, once upon a time, we probably wouldn't be in the financial mess we're in now.
1: Anything else happened in that pre-marketing phase?
2: Pre-marketing is exactly what it sounds like. We're, we're setting up the property for showing we're determining the best place. And I guess uh, the next part in pre-marketing is, is what the seller decides to do. So the seller goes with an as-is strategy, we, we, you know, we make sure the property is safe, secure, because that's, that's important to every client. If we're going as-is, it doesn't matter if we're in a $10,000 row house in inner city anywhere. Um, you know, we're going to secure it. We're going to do the best we can to, to have the utilities on to have it It'll be a safe environment. You know, it, it doesn't matter if the house is $1,000. If there's a rail missing on the stairs, the bank will spend the money to secure the property because it's just too much liability. You know, there there's um, $40,000 houses with black mold on all three levels. I've had clients go in and spend $10,000, 15000 remediating it because of the way they're looking at it is they don't want to have the liability of someone buying it and then, um, you know, getting sick or anything of that nature.
1: So they are looking out for safety or hazard issues. They don't just gloss over them and, and try to do a, a disclosure of some kind.
2: And at times they do, and it really depends on the value of the property, the history of vandalism in the area. You know, it it really de- it depends per client, their experience level. There's some that just can't afford it and and have a disclosure, which is perfectly okay because we would do that in retail real estate as well. But it, it depends on 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 the resources of the seller as well. But the next phase in pre-marketing is is fulfilling the the seller's decision on on the marketing strategy and in most cases for us that's managing the construction and, and not from a gc standpoint but you know from the person who was hired to do the work checking on them timeline wise and all that fun stuff
1: how does that person the contractor get paid do you have to pay that or does the bank pay it do you act as an intermediary to get the bills back and forth
2: it it varies it, again some clients um have a per, uh,
1: pre-approved list of vendors and they
2: pay them directly. Some, um, we hire them and the bank pays them directly. And a good amount, um, we hire, we pay, and then we invoice the bank.
1: If you get into this REO game, does the agent have to put up money in order to make this work?
2: Absolutely. And that's probably the biggest very of entry into this business. Um, I would tell you any agent doing any 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 kind of volume is going to have to have serious uh, reserves. Whether that's a line of credit you have access to, I would really advise people to stay away from credit cards just because the interest rates get so high. But um, especially if you get one of the larger institutions, uh, it's not uncommon for agents to say, "I have fifty thousand dollars out." You know, I currently I personally have a quarter of a million dollars out in receivables between utilities, cash for keys repairs, last minute repairs, all the stuff that goes with it.
1: And you're working with some big numbers to try to break that down to someone just getting in. What should they budget for each listing? What should they be thinking about? Should it be 100 hundred, five hundred, 500 $1,000? Is there a number they should think of?
2: That's a very good question. So uh, I, I break that down depending on who your client is. So if you have the clients that do it soup to nuts for you, and that might be your approach. I only want to go after clients that carry these bills for me, and these are the only clients I'm going to pursue. But if you're, if you're dealing with some of the larger clients who expect you to do the initial services, remember how I defined that earlier, where you're uh, securing the property, turning on the utilities, trashing it out, and mowing the lawn, and even if they they don't do anything else for you, I mean, assuming the client handles the repairs, I mean, just between the things I said, I would I would budget anywhere between three and five thousand dollars per listing. And the reason being because think about it, what's the what's the average cash for keys check gonna be for, you know? What what is it going to be? It's it's market specific, but I would say somewhere between two and three thousand dollars is is what I'm seeing. Um, the clients take, or the, the, the occupants take, because he, a lot of clients have been, uh, a couple of years ago, it was more like, here, start at 500 and negotiate the best number you can give us. But a lot of them have moved to uh, an incentive where, you know, if you move out in two weeks, it's 3,500. If you move out in four weeks, it's 1,500. If you move out in six weeks, it's 500, which is actually a very logical way to make the offer. The longer they stay, the less uh, assistance they are going to get because they're getting free housing. So,
1: And you, as the REO agent, have to front that money for the bank? For most clients, yes. How quickly before you get reimbursed?
2: Each client's different. Um, Each payment type is different. Uh, Cash for keys, the relocation assistance, is probably the fastest thing that gets reimbursed. And some of those utilities, I mean, you might be carrying them 90 days to six months. Between the time, you know, the bill comes in, you pay it, you submit it. it, it really varies.
1: Reimbursement on the cash or keys, you said that's quick. Usually how quick is that? Two to four weeks. You said that there are different types of clients when you're trying to estimate your cost. You've got these that ask you to do everything, soup to nuts. What's the other client? What do you call them and and how much does that typically cost?
2: Well, it it really depends because there's the one extreme where you do everything. There's the other extreme where they literally have an outsourcing an outsourced company that handles turn-on utilities, reeking the property, trashing out, maintaining it. If there's only one or two, I can think that do it completely. And then there's everything in between. We do this, you do that. And it really depends by client. But uh, I mean, my three to $5,000 estimate is if, if, if you're having to pay bills, that's what you need to look at. And securing the property can be as easy as a rekey, but if you have a property that's broken out windows, securing the property is having a whole house boarded up and that could be a couple thousand dollars as well.
1: Now, would you end up selling it as a boarded-up home or would you have, well, I guess it would be the bank's decision. It would be the bank's decision. Typically, if they choose to go with a boarded-up approach, that's the way they're going to sell it because, you know, at that point they would have just, you know, reinstalled Windows. So to finish up pre-marketing, the bank makes a decision on, on what work's going to be done and then it's your job to make sure that if they've chosen work, that work actually does take place. Absolutely. What happens next?
2: once the work, once the property, you've completed the pre-marketing, meaning you, you've just decided the marketing strategy, your seller has agreed or disagreed with you. And you guys have come to a conclusion the house is marketable. You then get a listing agreement and our listing agreements are a little different and you make sure you read them carefully. Cause some, you know, if you're not paying the right co-op that's on you, as we all know, with our MLS rules, you know, sometimes they offer a bonus incentive during this period. Um, the REO MLS agreements have very um, different language in the sense where they're required language that you need to disclose to the listing community versus the, buyer, the buyers in the community. You have a very prohibitive language. Most clients don't allow you to use the word REO or foreclosure or bank owned because they have a negative connotation. And a lot of these properties are in great shape, especially after they spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $20,000, $30,000 renovating them, and they don't, they don't want anyone to lowball them for an investor because they're really looking for that owner occupant. There's some institutions have uh, pre-qualification requirements where you have to get pre-approved with their lending side. You don't have to use them, but you have to be qualified because banks have learned, you know, they're under contract 20 or 30, 60, 90 days. And then it falls out because the buyer wasn't qualified. And a lot of them, since they happen to have a lending side say, well, you have to get qualified with us. You don't have to use us but we want to know that before we take this house off the market for 90 days that it's for real.
1: And that's all stated in your listing agreement. Mm-hmm. So the listing agreement comes after the pre-marketing or is that the end of the pre-marketing?
2: No, at pre-marketing, you know, I, I, I would call that the, 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 the marketing portion of the house at that point, once you get the listing, you're, you're coming to market and you have X amount of time to get it in the MLS. Uh, some require a minimum amount of photos, certain language, um, certain writers, certain material at the property. So you really need to understand your client's expectations uh, as to what the requirements are. And the, these properties are getting audited from an internet basis to having third-party inspectors go out to the properties with a checklist saying: Is there a sign in the ground? Do we have the appropriate sign writer on the sign? Do we have all the uh, warning signs in the window? Do we have the correct uh, marketing material on the countertop? So they're being very specific
1: in how they want their houses marketed. So somebody's coming by and checking your work. Absolutely. They're making you accountable. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think I think a great thing, because years ago, uh, when this first started, you know, there was the one agent in the marketplace that had all the listings, and they were all boarded up, no power was on, the grass was tall, and he was the only game in town. But as, as the landscape kind of opened up, and the sellers have somewhat gotten caught up and are starting to understand the flow and... There's, there's a lot more requirements to it.
1: I just noticed an interesting thing here. In traditional retail real estate, you get hired first and then you start doing the work. You have an agreement first and then you start doing the work. You've done all this work and, and expense without an agreement or do you have a different agreement with the bank to make sure you get reimbursed for all this time, effort, expenses you've already put out?
2: No, that's a very good question. Yes, you do have a separate agreement. Most uh, clients will give you what's called a master listing agreement. That's just a, you know, ongoing relationship that says, you know, we'll send you a supplemental listing agreement per property, but this is your, this is what's expected of you that tells you what liability they have, what liability you have, what kind of insurance you need to carry, what to turnaround time, how to resubmit for reimbursements, or they'll reference a, a sales guide or a manual of some sort that specifies how to do all that other stuff and
1: what the responsibilities of each party are. What's the typical time on market for one of these properties? um It really depends as to um what what
2: strategy the, the client decided to go with, whether they were able to follow your um your pricing suggestion. Unfortunately, some of these uh clients are really have their hands tied and have to start higher based on restrictions by the mortgage insurance company or by underwriters or whatever valuation method they used in addition to your value. And it's a lot of it's, you know, it's always a factor of price. So depending on how well priced they are, they m- might sit on the market a little longer. But really, if you follow the the philosophy, I think last year, my average days on market was like 29 because we repair so much of our portfolio.
1: If things are not working out in that marketing phase, do banks make uh, price adjustments or condition adjustments? And if so, how quickly? Uh,
2: it really depends, again, on the client. Some are very strict and, you know, they keep reassigning it in the third person it's just like retail ends up selling it correctly when you have a difficult seller who's not listening on price. Others again it's it, it really I think goes back to that level of trust and experience that you have together. If I have a client that I've sold three hundred homes for, you know, when I say, listen, this is the neighborhood, this is what's going on. You have to drop to this price. Here's two recent comps. They drop the price. But if if they don't if they don't have that level of relationship, a lot of this stuff is going through a portal or a metric where it says you know you need to um, be on market for 30 days before your first price reduction then after that we can reevaluate every 15 days or it's every 30 days or every 90 days so each client has a very different metric but for the, for the most part all of them uh, do systematic price reductions
1: during this marketing phase do you do anything in addition to what the bank requires? Do you have any standard practice that you do to, to get the word out or find a buyer?
2: Absolutely. We, I mean, we, we've been in our market for a while, so we, we do have a, a list of agents we've worked with in the past, and we'll email them out. Um, and, and you can do a lot of the traditional stuff depending on the price point And if the, 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 the house bears it, you know, do an open house, um, you know, they not all REOs is treated the same. So, I mean, there, we have REO that's not in a very safe part of town and it just wouldn't be a good idea to go sit in the house for four hours. Um, so obviously on those, we wouldn't treat the same way, but if the price point bears it absolutely any, any type of tradit you can do brokers opens, you can do, um, open houses, any of that stuff that you would do in a traditional setting, the sellers actually really like, you know, once we get into the two or $300,000 REO listings, I'll, I'll have them professionally photographed just like a retail house and send that to my seller, and that's actually a very good way to get more business.
1: Does the bank have any kind of restriction against you finding the buyer on your own listing?
2: Again, the answer is it depends. Some are actually are very strict and say absolutely no form of dual agency whatsoever, so our listing agent may not represent the buyer's agent. Others are perfectly okay with it. And- You know, it goes back to, I guess, whatever the philosophy is, because I I see no problem with dual agency as long as you're following what the state rules are and you're not sandbagging, you're not disclosing anything, you're not supposed to be. So if it's done ethically, um, the majority of the clients actually don't have an issue with it. I would say they almost prefer it in some instances because, uh, you know, they're talking to the selling agent all at the same time. But I would say as a rule of thumb, where there's a big issue with dual agency in REO is that you know the old guard the, the the old way of doing it where you just stuck a sign on the ground and didn't do anything and a lot of them didn't pick up their phones you would see doing both sides at a below market price and that's that's where it's a big issue when you're i mean i think anyone doing REO needs to be aware of the fact that you're helping get out of the this this financial mess that we're in and by doing that and pushing prices low, we're, we're not helping anything happen.
1: When the banks do allow you to bring the buyer in your own listing, do they have a modified or reduced commission for those transactions, or is it the same? It's the same. Do the banks have any restriction against you personally buying the property or someone on your staff buying the property?
2: Absolutely. That is a very big restriction. So
1: that it just never
2: happens. Um, I think some are okay with it. If you're owner occupied, it needs to be fully disclosed and it needs to be approved by, by management, but as especially as an investor, it's it's prohibited. I think that word disclosure will set you free.
1: Okay. So we've got the listing, we're doing the marketing, eventually a contract's going to roll in. What happens there? Well, during
2: the marketing as well, I, I encourage people to have very clearly defined systems. So again, I think the biggest part of doing REO successfully is being a good educator and you're educating the buyer's agents in the, in the marketplace, the buyers, if you're the one dealing with them, because it's not, it's not traditional real estate, right? You know, you you submit an offer on Friday evening, you're not going to get a response until the next business day. Um, These properties are being sold as is, you know, if, even if we repair them, they're still being sold as is. So you have to be able to articulate that to the selling side um, so that they're not setting the wrong expectation. And, you know, sometimes it takes 72 hours to get a response. And once we get a verbal, uh, we negotiate most REO contracts verbally, which is not common in in traditional real estate. And once it's approved, we then get a supplemental addendum that supersedes the contract. And they might not like the language, but none of it's negotiable. And that might take another three or four days to get approved. So it's not uncommon to take a week or two to negotiate an REO contract, which is not how we're used to in retail real estate. So there's a lot of different differences that you need to be able to articulate because you can frustrate the other party just simply because they don't understand the process.
1: How are you educating those buyer agents? Are you doing that by speaking with them over the phone? Are you sending them out some kind of documentation that they need to read? I think the answer is both.
2: You need to have documentation that, you know, for disclosure purposes, but at the same time, I I don't think a form's ever good enough. You do need to get on the phone and explain the process. And fortunately, and you know, from the transactional side, we've been in this market long enough where most people understand I don't mean fortunately, in any other way other than you know, the education's already out there, but most agents understand the the the, the steps, but if they don't, you know, don't be afraid to ask, and spending the 10 minutes on the phone could save you hours of arguing and agony down the road.
1: You said quite a few of your properties are being owner-occupied, so you're getting traditional financing with FHA, VA, conventional, rather than a cash purchase. So these properties have to be in good shape, and I assume they're also getting inspected. What happens when buyers come up with inspection issues?
2: It really depends. Um, My agents do a very good job of educating and, and, and putting language right in the contract, stating, hey, the client's repaired all the clients willing to repair this property at this point. From here on out, if you find anything else, we're either going to increase the sales price or going to re- reduce the seller concession or the buyer's going to pay for it. And we kind of limit the liability up front. And again, every, uh, any relationship, any outlined relationship that's defined in writing, is much easier to deal with because you don't have any um, surprises. You didn't tell me this. I, I expected this. You know, if you're taking my financing, why aren't you repairing? And there's also times where, you know, there's stuff that we didn't know because it wasn't part of what in our scope of what we did, and they find it, and it's required for financing, like um, like something underneath the house or a roof issue that we didn't touch. Um, a lot of times, the seller is willing to 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 accept it.
1: Was there anything else you wanted to talk about at the marketing of the listing?
2: I, I think the biggest thing is to make sure that you don't treat this differently than retail. I think most REO, I want to say most, a lot of REO agents. Because it's not retail, don't give it the proper marketing it requires. I think, you know, at the heart of this, we're still marketing and selling. So, you know, take the the higher quality photos, make sure you have as many pictures as your MLS allows you to upload, you know, have the upgraded um, distributions into Realtor.com, Trulia, Zillow, have them out there, put them in Craigslist, have flyers, do open houses, market your properties.
1: And I assume the final point on that is make sure your client knows that you're doing that.
2: Well, if you're doing that, you're selling your houses faster than everybody else in your market. So they will know, but absolutely. I mean, and that, you know, instead of bugging them, saying, hey, give me more listings because I'm great. Show them. Show them how great you're being, how well you're taking care of their assets.
1: Toot your own horn.
2: But with example, when I taught, you know, traditional classes, I said, you know, is, is sending a flyer saying I'm the greatest agent in the world? as valuable as having a little old lady say that young man did a great job taking care of my house. You should use him. You know, it's a very different message than me sending a full color brochure and said, Hey, by the way, I sold the house in 15 days. Here's the marketing piece I used.
1: Do you let the bank, the client know that you've put it on Craigslist or that you, you did something unique or extra that, that wasn't expected?
2: Again, I have very few clients. I work with uh, the same clients over and over again, so I, at this point, don't do too much of that. But as you're building the relationship, I think that's how you show your worth. But at the same time, don't be obnoxious about it. Just, I mean, again, don't treat it any different than you'd treat a human being in a retail transaction. Just, I think a lot of people assume banks are this, you know, third entity that's through a portal. No, it's 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 a human being on the other side who who's got a pretty good BS detector and don't like being lied to. Actually, while I I make that comment, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I hear back from feedback. Asset managers hate being lied to. Understand that they hear every version of the story because they manage properties all over the country. So just, you know, if you drop the ball, I'm telling you sometimes a law, it goes a long way to just say, I'm sorry, I dropped the ball and I'm going to fix it and this is how I'm going to take care of it.
1: You've talked about dealing with that asset manager. Is there a lot of rotation in that position? You, you're talking with just a couple of banks. Are you always talking to the same people or do they rotate? No,
2: I would almost say every institution rotates them. So you're never talking to the same people. And that's part. You know, that's the good and the bad of, about the business. Because some folks, you just hit it off great and you become really good friends. Then um, other people, you just have personality differences. You know? <laughs> you're know, you not going to like everybody. Not everybody likes me. So... The good is that they rotate them, and the bad is when you get along with them. So, um, but that's part of real estate, right? You need to be able to adapt to the situation, find the common ground and, and, and create relationship and rapport with whomever you're talking to, and if you can't, that's, real estate's not for you, because whether we're talking about REO or we were you know doing a call and taking retail listings, it's the same thing.
1: And I would assume that that is why there is so much value in getting a referral from a top REO agent who's already in the business. The person that that REO agent's working with, that asset manager, may be rotated into a new market and they've asked you for a referral in that new market. Is is that what you were talking about earlier?
2: Exactly. And it doesn't even have to be a top agent. It just needs to be someone with a good relationship. In retail real estate, you love the referral from the CEO of the company saying, this is who I use, use my realtor, but I'm just as happy with the one-off grandmother's friend who says he's a sweet boy and he used to help me take out the trash. He's in real estate, you should use him. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just the level of rapport that comes with that referral that's important to me.
1: Let's go into the contract phase. An offer comes in and what happens?
2: Let's just cover what really deviates from the retail side of it you know, there's just things that aren't customary that we do in retail. For example, in my market prior to REO, the selling agent always held the EMD and I'm pretty sure that's the same in your market. Um, customarily now the seller holds it because that's how REO is done. You know, the, the contract is superseded by the addendum and we have to follow that. And, you know, there's variations in state to state law. So for example, most, um, Sellers are pushing for their own title company since they already have the the title examined. Well, Virginia has Supreme Court ruling at the state level that says the buyer always gets to pick no matter what. So they can sign the addendums and then say, guess what? We still want to use our own title company. And sellers all the time say, you can't do that. And I said, if you want to sell real estate in my state, yes, they can. So it's an educational purpose. point in both directions. You need to be educating your seller to the state regulations, and you also need to be educating the selling agent to what they signed and, you know, obviously being enforceable in your state. Timelines are extremely important. You know, you have a seven-day inspection for informational purposes only. You need to have your utilities turned on. You need to, you know, there's a lot of expenses that come with REO that are not commonplace. Some clients, you know, during the winter, the due winterization is paid by the buyer. You know, it's performed by the seller's approved vendor, but needs to be paid by the buyer, and the re has to be paid by the buyer. At the end, the property needs to be re-keyed to change it from the client proprietary key that's been set to the property to a random one that the buyer won't have access to other assets. So, it's not traditional, you know. And closing dates are probably one of the most important differentiations. If you don't make your closing date, and it's kind of at the end of the month the whole deal can fall apart you know in retail if we push the closing three days the only one upsets by the mover but you know deals aren't blown up over a couple of days in retail as they can be in reo because you need to remember that these people are reporting to stockholders and the government a lot of times with uh, losses and missing your closing date is a really big deal in reo
1: when the offer comes in is it on one of your standard approved forms, or have you already sent that agent out a contract that the bank would use? Uh, how does that work?
2: That's a very good question. I've heard variations of what agents do. I've I've heard agents have a blank version of the contract to have uh, the buyer fill out the addendum at that point. I I, I normally don't. I just have the uh, the standard state contract presented. The one thing that we do differently is we came up with our own PDF. Um, some recovery sheet that needs to be included with the contract, and it just—it's a summary of every question the banks can ask me because we input these into a online portal for just about every client, and they ask additional questions that you might not deal with in traditional real estate. You know, are you a first-time homebuyer? Are you dealing with a government grant of any sort? Are you working with any um, n- neighborhood stabilization program? Are you active military? Are you—you know—they act they ask additional questions that are required for reporting issues that they have on their end of who's buying these homes, you know, with all the the money that's been infused into a lot of these institutions by the government, they're putting restrictions as to, or, or not, I wouldn't say restrictions, but targets of, you know, most of these, you know, if you're taking our government money, we want these properties going to owner occupants um, and so on and so forth.
1: And so you're trying to speed up the process by getting that informational form in the buyer's hands as early as possible.
2: And not only just uh,
1: speed up the process,
2: ensure that the process is, is going well. You know, handwriting varies, and if they put in a concession in the one part of the contract that we may overlook, I just want to be doing it correctly the first time around.
1: You've mentioned that the response time from the bank can be up to 72 hours, especially if you go over a weekend. and. And these negotiations can take one to two weeks. What happens if a second offer comes in or a third offer while that's all going on?
2: Most clients, I mean, it is, you know, until it's ratified, I mean, that's contract law in the whole country. Until you have meeting of the minds and both parties have ratified the contract, you can, you can, everything's negotiable. Some clients' philosophy is the second they accept a verbal contract and we send out addendums, they will, you know, give them, Two, three, five days, depending on the institution, to ratify that contract, and they will honor that 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 um, offer. Others clearly state, and that's part of the required uh, language in the MLS, that we will continue negotiating multiple contracts, and until you have a ratified contract from us, we're at liberty to negotiate whatever we want. I mean, that is state law in just about every every state. It's I wouldn't say it's very good faith, but um, it's it's allowable. So it, it really varies on to the the sell, the seller's selling philosophy, which is one of the things I said at the beginning.
1: On um, what percentage of your properties do you have these multiple offers occurring?
2: Again, it it, it depends on when you ask me. Right now, it's on a good majority of them. You know, '08, I couldn't give them away, and I was selling them at 90% of list. So, do I see that coming back? Maybe and and again they depend i would say on half it really depends on to how well we repair the property market the property or how well the seller decided to do it you know it's not us i really just think we're the messenger here
1: who's negotiating these things is it the asset manager that gave you the listing in the first place or is it a different person in the organization <laughs>
2: Each client's is different. Uh, some are sectioned off into the exact steps I said where you deal with a pre-marketer at the beginning and then it gets over. So I might be dealing with one individual for pre-marketing and then when it goes to market, it's an asset manager. But tip, the asset manager is the one who's helping determine the marketing strategy and that's who I negotiate with. But a lot of times, they need to kick it up to management. You know, If it's below their approval level of you know list to sell price, they might need um, approval from their... Uh, from their manager, from the mortgage insurance, from who knows? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, from the investor on the note, you know, they have delegated authority up to X and some need additional um, approval above that.
1: Who's signing off on the agreement? Is it an asset manager or someone else in the bank? Typically, it's the asset manager. Sometimes it's a,
2: it gets sent directly to an investor, but I would say 99% of the time it's the asset manager on behalf of. And that's a common question you know, during the process. Hey, I need a copy of the power of attorney. Anything else we should know about that
1: contract phase?
2: Where you have the biggest nightmares in the contract phase are both with the repairs and closing. And the closing portion of that is title. So you know, the the biggest problem with, with REO is that you have a lot of people who you have no control over who affect your performance, meaning the property preservation companies, the title companies doing the searches. So I encourage you to be a relationship builder at all phases of this process and start building those relationships early, asking them, you know, is the title clear? Do we have the deed recorded? Do we, you know, for all the agents who, who may listen to this call, you know, see all the flaws that can happen when you're on the buy side and try to build a system around that so it doesn't happen again. So obviously, you know, if the utilities aren't on, you get to the home inspection, that delays you three, four days. And I mean, the most important takeaway is to make sure you're hitting your your closing dates.
1: You must have something that tracks all these dates and times and events. How are you tracking all these things to make sure they happen when they're supposed to happen?
2: Software. Uh, I really think if you're doing this at any decent volume, you must have software that you're comfortable with. There's, I mean, I'm not going to advocate one or the other. I'm, I'm glad to share the one I use, but um, the key thing is that you have a software that's within your budget, A, and B, that you are going to actually use. So, But um, I think it's impossible to do this at, at any voluminous level without having
1: good software. Which one do you use? I use eBrokerHouse.com. And that's able to track all these these events that are happening all over the place. The key thing with
2: with why I didn't say top producer, which is very common, or anything like that, is that you know CRM is a true relationship manager. So we're we're managing the lead to then a customer to then a client to then a past client, and we're marketing the relationship, right? And, and what we're doing here is we're managing property. So this software is a lot closer related to let's say a construction property a software which what you're managing is an asset through its life cycle in your organization. And, you know, one seller could be 10 properties. So I'm not managing the relationship with my software. I'm managing the tax associated with the asset. And then once the asset's complete, you know, we don't, we don't need to mail to the asset.
1: You would consider what you do heavily property management oriented.
2: The only reason I don't say yes automatically is because that, you know, I don't manage... Rental properties or anything of that nature, but I, I, I think the best way to describe it is asset management.
1: Have we completed the contract phase? Are we ready to move to closing phase?
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely, because at that point, you know it, it slides right in, and the, the, the key thing is to make sure that we 're hitting all the guidelines that your final expenses are being reconciliated on time, you know if there need, if there need to be expenses on the HUD that they're on the HUD that you have all your bills turned in. Um, you know, that you're changing the locks, that the wires are going out at the same time. And, you know, it, it's a little different in the sense where, um, you know, if you make a cash offer and then you switch to financing, it can mess everything up because it was a different addendum, different disclosures had to be associated with it. And it's, it's, it's different than in the retail world. And a lot of times the, the selling it gets frustrated because it's like, I don't know what the big deal is. We do this all the time. Well, it is a big deal because REO is not the same and, you know, it, there's there's process and procedures for everything.
1: Well, I think a lot of the agents out there that are listening who have not been part of REO might make an assumption that commissions or fees would be different than the retail side. And I assume that they would think that there were a lot less. Uh, are the commissions similar? Are they, are they less? Are they more? Are they, you know, how, what's that income side look like?
2: It's definitely different. So direct clients typically pay, you know, somewhere between five and 6% and, and they all instruct you on how to split the co-op. So, you know, there's clients that pay you six and you split three and three. There's a good majority of them pay two and a half, tell you to keep two and a half and pay three. Some pay to tell you to take two and pay three. Most outsourcers do take a referral fee on top of that. So you know, if you're paying six, they might ask you for a 35% referral, 25% referral fee. Some might ask you for that 35% referral fee on the two and a half. So this is where, I, in the beginning of the call, I, I, I tell people who are getting into this business and who are already in this business to become very systematic in your numbers and drill down to them and, you know, track what the average assignment is, what your average reimbursements are, what your average commission is, and seeing what each client pays. Because if you have a client who's only giving you one listing a month, is being rude, paying you a lower commission, and is difficult on reimbursements. I would advise you not to be in business with that person. Sure,
1: and the only way you found out was by making a mistake. Not only that, I, that that's part of that networking.
2: You know, talking to people. There, again, uh, 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 I'm not going to mention names, in good or bad. But um, th- there's clients with reputations, especially in your own marketplace. That you know, oh, it's, you ask anyone doing RM they're like, I I don't do with them. I did business with them. You know. And it's, it's all right there if, you, if, you're, if you're networking. When I said networking with agents, I, I would encourage you to network with REO agents in your own market because they're the ones that know the guidelines better than anybody else. I'm surprisingly really, really, really good friends with the top agents in my own market, and we talk all the time and compare notes.
1: Uh, they would understand what you're going through.
2: Absolutely, and they're the first ones I call when a new rule or regulation comes out because how it applies to my local market is only going to be relevant to local market agents.
1: You've been doing this for a while. I assume a lot of agents have been getting into the business. Has that put downward pressure on the commissions being paid by the banks? I think it's it's a lot of things.
2: Uh, I think the downward pressure is, is, has been by the losses taken by the banks, by the competition, by um, a, a lot of different things. I try not to, you know, blame it on anything. It, again, this market, isn't. no one's entitled to it. So, you know i'm i'm grateful for what i have and and work with what i got right now and 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 i'm prepared to shift if if we were to go away tomorrow you're going to be upset for about an hour and have the conversation with my team that we had the day i hired him and repurpose and move forward
1: what kind of paperwork and reporting do you have to do with these banks how often are you in touch with them what kind of things are do they want to know
2: they they want um systematic checks, whether it's weekly, bi-weekly, they want updated photos, they want reports, they want uh, monthly billing, they want, uh, there, there's a there's the good amount that we do on our end and there's a good amount they do on their end where they're measuring, you know, your list to sell ratio, your days on market, your average spread between what you said it was going to sell for, what it actually sold for. They track everything. They track everything. So, there's a lot of reporting that comes with REO and not necessarily you're even aware it exists.
1: That software helps you keep on top of that. I can see because of
2: the software I have, I can see how I'm doing. So I can literally go in and see, and I I just checked for someone uh, two days ago that year over year, I'm down 30% on monthly assignments. And That's a good thing for me to know because I need to adjust accordingly with with folks and payroll. And either we adjust in expenses or we adjust in activity and bring in alternative activity to supplement that income. And I'm very transparent with my staff and say, listen, we're down this much. We can either let somebody go or we can all pull together and go get that much more business.
1: You're not doing all this business just by yourself. You have 16 other team members what do they do? What kind of responsibility do they have? What kind of titles do they have? How do they fit into this picture?
2: Sure. And, and, and one, as I mentioned, I network with top agents around the country. And every time I ask a question of that nature, I get the same response. I used to do it this way, but I'm currently doing it this way. So I'm, I'm going to um, answer it the same way because I've been doing it one way, but with the change in inventory, um, I'm exploring other options as well. But um, currently it's it's more of a team of specialists. So uh, the, the 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 positions that if you're gonna do REO that can't vary is you, you need to have a full time billing and accounting person. You know, whether that's two people, three people or one person. Um, you know, the, there needs to be someone who's submitting the bills, following the guidelines, asking for the check runs, verifying payment, doing all that stuff. And most um real estate agents don't have attention to detail by by design, right? We're we're sales folks. So you need to find someone with that high attention to detail who is going to get your money back because I think the average REO property, I'm putting out more than I collect in commission. So if I don't do my reimbursement correctly, I'm losing money on every single property. Well, how do you find that person? Um, Well, I would encourage anybody who's running a business to get very familiar with hiring and staffing and uh, personality profiling and and understanding the different, uh, you know, natural predispositions that people have towards doing a certain task. And then obviously uh, hiring. I I normally go with personality, uh, profile, and lastly uh, skills because nothing that we're doing is rocket science. I think we can teach anybody just about any portion of this business as long as they're, you know, wired to do it and willing to do it.
1: So are you looking for someone with an accounting background or a bookkeeping background to, to go into that position? For
2: those positions, yes. Yes, but but to me, even above that is is are they a, a cultural fit within your organization? What other positions? Field folks, whether that's just a pure runner or someone with the construction background that I mentioned earlier to assess the repairs. Um, we have a pre-marketing uh, person who really just focuses on getting the properties vacated, you know, if there is something we need to deal with, scheduling evictions, uh, scheduling cash for keys, relocation, all that all that stuff that goes with it. Then I have someone in valuations and repair who literally all they do is make sure that all the BPOs are perfect and, and that the uh, repair scopes are being done correctly. Then I have somebody else who negotiates on the MLS, uh, all the contracts, you know, back and forth, whether it's my agent on the MLS or or, or that person directly, but negotiating with the asset managers, making sure that the contracts are being ratified. And then I have a, a closing department making sure that everything's being closed on time.
1: That's a lot of people running around.
2: Yes, it is. What do you do? My job is to, um, sometimes I describe it like a hospital. So, you know, if I'm the chief surgeon, if you're not talking to me, it's a good thing. <laughs> I, I normally have to get involved when 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 the surgery goes awry and either you know be be the fireman and put out the fires, but most importantly is maintain the relationships and continue getting the business coming in. I mean, once you have it, I think that's where the mega, most REO agents um, mess up, where they just assume they have it and someone hungry isn't pursuing it right behind them so it's maintaining the relationships and really being the tinkerer and and tweaking before it's too late you know i i think my job is to be proactive, see you 90 days out, to be intimately familiar with with the numbers and what they mean. You know, that is the beautiful thing about REO, about compared to any other form of real estate I've done, where I can really tell the future. At least in my local, you know, in my in my portfolio, based on the assignments today, I know what I'm going to earn in three to six months, and are my expenses in line with that? Do I need to go find more business, or do I need to adjust my staff? And that's the Constant dance that will never go away.
1: You're generating new relationships, but maintaining relationships, and these this one relationship can generate a lot of business. How are you doing that? How are you maintaining that relationship? Are you making a a weekly call? Do you try to go visit them in person? What are you doing to maintain the relationship?
2: Well, a I don't think there's a formula, uh, because if it's a true relationship, it's not a you can't have it completely systematized. I I really think that once you build. Real relationships—they're—they're they, they're just that. So you know, is, it's not a scheduled call. It, it's that interaction. It's that communication. If they're local, it's going out to dinner, interacting. I mean, a lot of the people I know—I know their entire families. I know what activities they like. You know, they were well aware when I was going to propose to my then girlfriend, now wife, and I got feedback from them. It's a—it's a true relationship, and it needs to be treated that way. And you know, if they're out of town, I go visit and. I've had a lot of them even come visit me on their time off because it's a friendship.
1: Going back to your team for a second, how do you compensate them? Are they being paid hourly, sourly, uh, some type of commission? How does that work? So I have several
2: models because I'm in expansion market. So in my local market, everyone's pretty much salaried with a um, per transaction bonus. Um, and then I have others where we do a revenue share and, you know, with with the market the way it is, I, I think I'm going to move more towards that where, you know, I have different folks specializing in very small geographic areas and they kind of take care of it soup to nuts. But either or model works. You just need to be comfortable with it and you need to understand the economics of your marketplace. So, for example, if you're selling properties at an average of 30000 and your minimum commission is all you're getting, which would be 1000 bucks, it's almost impossible to do it on a revenue share and you really need to have folks with, with, with fixed expenses. But if you're in a market that has a higher price point and there's, there's, there's a bigger spread there, you, you know, the, 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 the revenue share might be a better option because you can, you, you can, uh, whether the, the, the ups and downs much
1: better. Okay. You said you're running a couple different models. It sounded to me like you're opening up A different market, kind of like on a franchise model. I'll show you how to run it, and we'll split revenues. Is that correct? Did I understand that?
2: Um, That's not what I do. Um, There there are folks that do that. Um, The the expansion markets where I do revenue share, it is me. It's still my relationship. I just, you know, I'm looking at where my business is and where I want it to go in in three to five years. I don't plan on being in those markets long term. So why do I want to go create a financial footprint? Um, I just want to be in there while while it's good obviously serving my client to the highest ability and you know serving the 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 marketplace both buyers and and, and the broker community and that's the the, be, the best way I know how to do it without spending too much in my footprint but at the same time being able to service everybody with the highest level of integrity
1: leo you have all these people running around you have all these expenses some people might look at this and say are you making a profit
2: and that's something that you need to look at on a daily basis and I'm completely transparent with my folks and I tell them the second I'm not and, and, and I've had this conversation when we've dropped the ball and you know may have jeopardized a relationship and say you know I've been doing this since I was out of high school it's all I've ever done I will always be able to feed myself and my family selling real estate whether I have to get in a car and put people in the car or go on a listing appointment this is what I do and I know how to do it very well and I tell my folks if Ario if goes away I'll be fine so you guys are more dependent on each other than I am on you.
1: Is the overall operation are profitable? Are you making a profit?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Would you mind disclosing a percentage that you're making, some kind of net profit percentage?
2: Anyone doing volume, because uh, Ario, and I'll, I'll, I'll take this moment to say that, is a very low margin business. I mean, there's a lot of expenses that go with it. I just told you that most clients pay you know, less than 3%, and you have to manage all of this. So where you're getting is is scales of economy and and using that volume to to offset the expenses. But I would say that on the low end, I know REO agents that make 10%, probably the the highest net margin I've heard of is 30%, 35%. And uh, last year, I think I was at 22%. Uh,
1: You've mentioned that you think education is valuable and you mentioned how you educated yourself. What do you recommend that a new agent or agent that wants to get into REOs? How would they educate themselves? Are, are there schools they can go to, uh, uh, classes?
2: There's quite a, a, a bit of them. Um, I actually, I'm a little self-promotion. I am the national instructor at uh, VRM. VRM is a Vendor Resource Management, which is the largest outsourcer in the United States. They, uh, for the longest time, had a sole source contract with Freddie Mac, um, now they still have the line share, but they're doing Fannie and Bank American and other other institutions. They have a very good class. If you go to www.vrmco.com and click on the training button, you can find the next class and spend a day with me. Uh, but Five Star has another certification program. I would I, I, I guess the, the important in the vetting is who's teaching it. You know, make sure that it's it's an institution that is recognized in the industry and that the instructor. Uh, Knows what they're doing.
1: How would somebody who hasn't been in the industry determine that? How would you find out that the, the organization you're thinking about getting educated by knows what they're talking about?
2: Well, that's the beauty of the, the modern age we live in. You can Google anything and p- give people's feedback. You know, go get on the forums, see what the chatter is. And real estate agents are not shy of telling you their opinion. So you could find out what is it, what, what. People recommend, and you know, go go on forums, ask, and people will tell you what what their opinions are.
1: Are there any organizations or communities that people should consider joining? There are several. Um, the, the the larger,
2: more respectable ones um, are in, in in positions where they're really not taking on any new members, but um, just there 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 are several. Um, but I, I I would suggest if you just go out and Google, uh, there, there's a whole bunch. That that'll come up. Could you name drop a couple? NRBA, Ario uh, Mac is another one. Ario uh, Connection, Ario uh, Broker. There's several out there.
1: Leo, I'd like to talk a little bit about you. Why do you think you've been so successful?
2: I I think that the answer to that is just systems and and, and determination. I mean, I don't take no for an answer no matter what I'm doing. And I think I've gotten some clients just because they're like, well, you know, are you going to keep calling me every day? And I said, yes, I'm going to keep calling you every day until you hire me. So I think some just gave up and hired me. <laughs> um, but uh, again, I, I I don't claim to be smarter, or better, or more successful than other people. I just, I find people that I are, are doing something I want to do and I model them. Uh, you know, I, I truly don't, believe I need to reinvent anything. I need to go find people who are doing it at a very high level and emulate them. And my journey into really studying successful uh, folks has been very surprisingly pleasant because they'll pick up the phone and talk to me. And, you know, if you're asking true questions and you're not wasting their time and you're trying to give them whatever you have in your life experience, most people are very open and generous.
1: What do you think that a new agent would need to know to be successful in the REO business? What advice could you give them from a big picture perspective to make this all work?
2: If you don't mind, I'd answer the question a little differently. I I would tell a new agent that, you know, A, they've picked an incredible industry to be in because you can truly do whatever fits you best in real estate, whether it's doing REO or it's doing new construction or focusing on investors or focusing on first-time home buyers or focusing on move-up buyers, being the neighborhood expert, being the you know, expired uh, cold calling expert, working a specific niche, working your PTA, your country club, whatever you choose as a business model, st- study someone who's very successful at it. You know, there's people in very specific niches who only do a one mile radius and have a phenomenal multi-million-dollar business. So before you even decide that REO is that niche, sit down and figure out who you are, what Behavior patterns and lifestyle patterns make you the happiest. So if, if, you, if you're not confrontational and, and you don't like uh, rejection, don't cold call. You know, go for a referral business where you're high touch, high, high interaction. You know, if, if you don't like being spread out, maybe don't do REO because you, you end up normally covering a large geographic territory. But I think you, you just need to have an honest self-discovery conversation with yourself figure out what makes you tick and, and go find, before you go build that model, go find, I would advise any new agent to go join a team doing what you think is going, because then you can get inside the machine, see how a machine really works. Um, And and in in my study of top agents and travel around the country, almost every top agent I know started on a large team. And I, I really think that goes back to mindset because no one told them no and they thought it was completely normal. They went out and did the same. I think, uh, most, most of the folks on my team have never worked in real estate and to them selling 50 houses a month is completely normal. And they just think it's weird that people only sell two or three. So, and I'm I'm not being facetious about that. That's what their mindset is. And, you know, I've always, I tell my folks, you know, the greatest compliment you can give me is one day go out and build a great business yourself. I don't expect anyone to, you know, live and die next to me. Um, but I, I really think that, you know, that's one of, the, one of the key denominators I've seen in a lot of top agents is they worked for a, another top agent and, and those large models and mindset just were normal to them and they didn't expect anything different. And, you know, one, one of my first mentors was asked, he's like, um, how did Leo go and sell, you know, 15 homes in three months? And he said, because I didn't tell him he
1: couldn't do it. Leo, what Drives you? What motivates you?
2: That's a very good question. I, 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 you know, I'm constantly trying to be the best version that I can of myself, and you know, I'm, I'm well aware that you know, it, this is not about how many houses I can sell, and it's how many people's lives I can touch. Um, I'm pretty active with several nonprofits in my marketplace, and that to me is is the most rewarding part. You know, the, what I can give back, and, and really, you know, what I, how I live my life, and. And making sure that the experience and the and the path is is truly rewarding, and that doesn't come from you know being enlightened. That comes from <laughs> failing a couple times and losing a bunch of money, and realizing you know 12-hour days and not having a, a, a personal life. You know can can just pass very quickly, and it's 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 the people and the moments and the and the time that we treasure, not not the money or the transactions or any of that stuff.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um,
2: I, I would really just say, you know, think as big as possible, dream as big as you can. You know, learn as much from people who've done it. And again, when you spend time with people who've accomplished a lot, you realize they're they're no different than you are. They put on their pants one leg at a time, and. um The one thing I can probably tell you is that they're more disciplined than you are. (laughs) So, you know, figure out what models and disciplines. And I like studying success at any level where it's an athlete or a politician or anything. They did something very systematically and stuck to it and were relentless in their
1: pursuit of it. Well, Leo, you are relentless in your pursuit of excellence. You think big. You dream big. You have mindset and determination. You've adapted models and developed systems. You've learned how to leverage yourself through people and technology. Your confidence and your empathy blend together to make an amazing agent. Your first decade in real estate has been phenomenal. I look forward to hearing about your second. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward.
0: You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent, interview of the month club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America
1: reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.